My name is Jeff Heiser. It is, I can't tell you what a privilege it is to be here this morning. I, the sound booth used to be over here, and the stage was over here, so this is all new for me. Um, but it, it really is a, a joy to be here. I'm so, so thankful for this church. I'm actually in ministry because of a mission trip that I went on in high school to Ecuador um, through this church. So I'm just, it, I can't tell you what a, what a privilege it is, and thank you for having me this morning. We're going to be taking a break from your series in 1 Samuel this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32. I think we're going to have it here on the, on the screen. But if you do have a Bible, go ahead and turn there because we will be referencing back to it. and It'll be good to have it in front of you. The book of Psalms is the songbook or the hymnal of the Bible. Now, we often use the Psalms as prayers, and that's entirely appropriate. Actually, Jesus did that, so it's totally fine. But for the people that it was originally written to, they, they primarily saw it as like a hymn book, a psalm book. Um, and they would be, these songs would be sung at a worship service a lot like this one. They'd be, the people of God would be singing it together. Now, Psalm 32 was written by King David. Or you could put it this way, Psalm 32 was written by a believer, by a faithful follower of God. And, and it was written to be sung by faithful people, the people of God, right? It was uh, David in the psalm, he's describing um, something that has happened to his li- in his life a lot, which is where he has come up in his own heart against just a real resistance to confessing his sin. But he recognizes in this psalm his deep need for that repentance or that confession And then he reflects on just the beauty and the joy of receiving forgiveness from God. Okay, this is a psalm written by a believer for believers. That that doesn't mean it's uh, not for unbelievers, not at all. In fact, it's extremely relevant for anyone. But what he's describing here is a normal experience of the Christian life. And so thus, if you've been following God for, uh, for, for decades, this is an experience that you've probably had. And and something that can speak to any of us and all of us this morning. So let's turn to our passage here. Uh, We're going to be, as I said in Psalm 32, we're going to read the whole thing, starting in verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's good word. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, and that you are a Father who loves us. 
and you've spoken to us by your word. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, it might be over a month ago now, I was reading a, an article about the movie that just came out, Oppenheimer. Now, I, I'm not recommend, actually, I haven't seen it, so I'm, I'm not recommending it. Um, but this article was describing how Christopher Nolan, the, the director, actually, he had kind of visited all these movies, all these sets to, for where he's going to film the, the, this movie. And he visited all these sets. He wasn't quite satisfied with them. They kind of did, tried some CGI. He wasn't satisfied with the setting for this research facility, which is supposed to be built in the middle of the desert. This is Los Alamos, where they were um, developing the atomic bomb. And so he went and he found this place on a ranch in New Mexico in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And he built a whole functioning set movie, uh, like town, in the middle of this desert. And it said that you can stand anywhere in that town and look just 360 degrees and you will see absolutely no civilization whatsoever. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's life in the middle of a desert. Now, the reason I bring that up is that is, some, that is, that is somewhat of a, of a metaphor for how this psalm would have hit the ears of the, the, the people, the ancient peoples who heard it for the first time. And this is why. Because the gods of the ancient world were not like this god. The gods of the ancient world, they were known to be, to be petty, vindictive, angry, greedy, bloodthirsty, all of the things that you can, that you can imagine they were. And, and if you remember, the, the, I, I, I think I read this in high school, the story of the Odyssey, where um, Odysseus is the, the main character, and he's not a god, but what he does is in the, in the story, he acts out the values of the gods of the society, and he comes home, climax is when he comes home after being gone for decades, he comes to his house and he takes out his bow and arrow, and he just takes revenge. He just, it's, it's bad. And, and you're kind of like, ah, you know, you get pumped. That is the values of the gods of the society. He's taking revenge, not, not because these guys that have been living in his house are, you know, they're, they're disrespecting his wife, although they certainly are. It's that they have disrespected his name, and he takes revenge. And that's the climax. What is he doing? He's, he's acting out. A, he's living in a society in which the gods are petty, vindictive, and angry. And, and what you're left with is honor and reputation. That, that is what matters ultimately. And if you don't have that, then your recourse is revenge and bloodshed. Right? That is the gods. Those are the gods, the society of the ancient world that this psalm comes into. And so into that world is a God who describes himself like this. This is from Exodus 34, when God comes to Moses and he tells Moses his name. And this is what he, who he says he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those words would have felt like life in the middle of a desert. Those words would have been so sweet to those ancient peoples because there was no other God like this. In Psalm 32, like so many of the Psalms, they actually take the words from Exodus 34 and they play it out. They, what he's saying is, what is, it li what is this life like with a God like this who forgives iniquity, transgression, 
and sin. What is it like? What does it feel like to know this God? And he says, it's like an oasis in a desert. Now, they're doing all these studies these days um, that, about how in the social media age, we're kind of returning to that shame and honor culture that you see in ancient times. And one of my favorite uh, Christian thinkers these, these days is this guy named Alan Jacobs. He's a professor at Baylor. And a number of years ago, he said the, the great moral crisis of our time. It's not sexual license. Or so, the great moral crisis of our time is vindictiveness, petty revenge. Like that is what we do so much. That's what we all, that's what our culture just revels in. And if that is true, then what we need is Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 offers us a life of forgiveness in the midst of a desert of revenge and anger. But we avoid it, and oftentimes the desert feels so much safer. But Psalm 32 is here to remind us of a God, the God who loves us and who forgives us and who wants us to know him. So for you note takers, I know that you have a little thing in front of you. But my, my two points this morning are what we, what we avoid and what we need. What we avoid and what we need. And I'll go ahead and say that the late Tim Keller, before he passed away, his last book was a book on forgiveness, and I'm using some of his ideas. So, um, so first of all, what we avoid. Well, three things. We avoid guilt, we avoid forgiveness, and we avoid blessing. We avoid guilt, forgiveness, and blessing. David has a very clear sense of the ways in which he and we placate our sense of guilt for the things that we do. That is to say, we have very sophisticated means of explaining away or avoiding the things that we do wrong. And this is all over this passage. Look at some of the ways that David highlights, the ways that he avoids his guilt. The first is the most, maybe it jumps out the most obviously. That's in verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent. Silence. Right? Do not acknowledge your sin at all. And maybe you've experienced this in, in relationships. I, I know I've experienced it where you say something like, okay, yes, 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 I, I know that I yelled at my kids, and, and I, I know I, I shouldn't do that. I definitely yelled at them, but listen, I'm just not going to yell at them ever again. And I'm, we're not going to bring it up, and we're all going to move on and forgot that, forget that dad ever yelled at his kids. Right? It's the statute of limitations approach to sin. And what David says in this psalm is he says, time cannot heal your moral guilt. Time does not offer you forgiveness. Right? We ignore our sin. Or look down then there at verse 5. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. What he's saying is that we avoid guilt by covering or justifying our own sin. And we have all these very, you know, these very clever mental hoops that we can jump through to kind of explain away the things that we do wrong. And maybe this is just very simply the language we use. Think, think about these words that we use to describe ourselves, like frugal. Um, I'm not greedy. I'm just frugal. Um, or leadership. Like, I'm not, I'm not power hungry. I'm just using my God-given leadership gifts. Right? I'm, I'm comfortable. I just, I'm, not, I'm not like desperately grasping for control. I just like to be comfortable. We justify our sin. We cover our sin. We lie to ourselves. David goes on. He gives several other, you know, about lying to ourselves, minimizing our sin. These different, these different ways that we avoid guilt. We avoid it. Why? 
Well, one of the reasons is because one of the biggest narratives of our culture is this, I am okay. I am okay. And, and if we admit our guilt, what, we're, what are we saying? We're saying, I am not okay. And if, and if I admit the ugliness that's present in my heart, maybe there's something genuinely wrong with me, and it's not okay. And we don't like that. It's painful. The reason we avoid or hide is that we don't like our guilt. But you know, if we're honest, we probably don't actually like forgiveness all that much either. And so we avoid guilt. We also avoid forgiveness. Look, look down. Um, you know, in some ways, this is the other side of the coin where we could read Psalm 32 and we say, listen, I have no problem. I'm, I know my guilt. And in fact, I, I just, I, I know it and I'm totally comfortable with it. But we have a problem with the quickness with which God forgives sin. So verse 5. This is what it says. It says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And boom, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The completeness, simplicity, and immediacy of God's forgiveness is, if we're honest, deeply uncomfortable. One, of the, one author talked about our infatuation with the idea that someone's keeping score. That is to say, we are saying, God, please leave something up to me. Please leave something up to my effort, some means that I can do something to absolve me of my own guilt. Don't just forgive me freely. Let me do something and give me a role in my own justification. And it shows its head whenever we engage in self-loathing or like these internal put-downs or pity parties or just not, and they're not because of the pain of broken relationship or because we've, you know, sorrowed God or something. No, it's just simply because we want to use them as some means of atoning for our sin. Maybe if I beat myself up enough, God will know that I'm serious, and then he'll decide, then he'll forgive me and he'll accept me. Wallowing is just as much a rejection of God's forgiveness as denying that we have guilt at all. Psalm 32 says that genuine repentance starts when justifying and ignoring sin stops. And when you and I recognize the goodness and love of God who will completely, simply, and immediately forgive you of all of it. Well, how do we know if we're avoiding guilt or avoiding forgiveness? Well, Jesus actually gives a diagnostic for that. He says, how well, how good are you at forgiving other people? Because if you can't forgive other people, then it might be that you misunderstand this God of forgiveness. You need to understand, you need the humility of understanding how deep your sin is, how deep your guilt is, and the confidence and the trust that God loves you and forgives you. If you have those things, then you can freely forgive other people. And if we avoid guilt or we end up, or we avoid forgiveness, well, what happens? Well, we end up forgiving, avoiding the blessing that David talks about in verse 1. I've been doing a little bit of premarital counseling this summer. And one of the things that I always try and convey to these couples that um, counseling is something that I didn't make it up. It was actually told to me when I was doing premarital counseling, but I've seen it play out and be true. One of the things I tell them is I say, intimacy can come through conflict done well. 
Intimacy in marriage doesn't happen by avoiding conflict. But it, it happens by conflict actually bringing out things and then reconciling and coming back together. Why, and why is that? Because when, when we're in the midst of a conflict, the walls come down. And we're kind of exposed in front of that other person. And all our worst tendencies just rear their heads and are just all in their face. And they know us. And it's ugly. It's not pretty in that moment. But if that other person turns towards us, doesn't run away, doesn't push us away, but moves towards us and forgives us and still loves us and maybe even loves us more because they know us better as a result, what can happen? True intimacy can result from that. True intimacy. And that's why it's, that's why it's foolish to stonewall. It's why it's foolish to, to throw up walls, to, to try and crush your spouse, to refuse, to forgive or repent. It's, it's foolish because the sweetness of restored relationship is so wonderful. And that is a picture of the blessing that's on offering God's forgiveness. He does not hold our sins over our head. He does not remember our sin. He moves toward us in love. It says in verse 10 that his steadfast love surrounds us. And the blessing of restored relationship, it is so sweet. It is so good. And that David says, listen, it is foolish to, to, to refuse to experience it. And that's why he's, what he's getting at in verses 8 and 9 when he talks about the horse and the mule. He's saying, this is so good. Run to it as fast as you can. The sweetness of restored relationship with God is incredible. It is such a blessing. Well, how do we get to the place where we begin? To, what, what does it mean to experience it? How do we experience it? So we've looked at what we avoid. Now we're looking at what we need. We need his hand. We need his safety. And we need his covering. Okay, we need his hand. It says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. What's God's hand like? Well, if you are to read the Bible, you see God's hand doing a lot of different things. He uses it to create. He uses it to provide. He uses it to bring judgment. But Psalm 32 is sung by a, uh, a, the people of God. It's for the people of God. What is God's hand like for his people? Well, one of, so the, you know what, I just realized that I could have had a slide of this, but I'm going to do my best to describe it. Um, so the artist Rembrandt famous Renaissance painter, one of, maybe the greatest painter ever. Um, he was really famous for the ways in which he could use light to highlight certain aspects of his painting, paintings. And one of, maybe his most famous painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in it, if you know the story, there's a, a young man who's run off and spent all his dad's money living a wild life. And when he's completely destitute, he decides to come back to, to his father's house and to ask him just, hey, let me be your slave. And instead, the father runs to him and embraces him. And the return of the prodigal son is a painting of that moment of embrace. Okay? So you have the son who's come, and he's kneeling in front of the father. And you see the son's back, and the father is standing there, and he has his hands on him. And Rembrandt, he's used light to direct your eyes directly to these hands. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about these hands, and it's because they look different. One of the hands is kind of on his shoulder, and it's, it's, it's bigger and heavier and stronger looking. And the other hand is a little bit slimmer. It's on his back, 
It's a little bit more tender looking. It looks more gentle. And what Rembrandt is doing is he's, he's painting a picture of what a father's hands look like. There's strength and there is tenderness. Right? There's heaviness and love. And I think that that is some of what David has experienced with God's hand. It's gentle and it's tender and it's strong and it's loving. Now, I have a three-year-old son, um, and all the parenting books say that when you want to get a three-year-old son's attention, what do you do? You put your hand on him, either the back of their neck or maybe the top of their head or their shoulder, and you say, hey, look, look here. Hey, I'm telling you something. You put your hand on him. And what I think David has experienced is God putting his hand on his neck and saying, David, don't do this anymore. Look me. Look, look here. Look at me in the eyes. Don't do this anymore. It's foolish. Don't go down this road. Come back to me. Come here. I'm your father. Sometimes we need his hand on us. And sometimes we can feel the heaviness of it. And I think that's what David is describing here. And we don't, it's a little nerve-wracking to mention this, um, but, in a, in a, but, but sometimes David has experienced both physical and mental ailments because he's not willing to repent and to turn to God. Now, I don't want to draw too, too strong of lines between our, you know, our, our, our sicknesses and illnesses and stuff, but Psalm 32 is very comfortable with that at least being a category. That God would, God, we would feel the heaviness of God's hand so that he can draw us back into his arms in an embrace. We need his hand. We also need his safety. Verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We live in the social media world, and it's kind of the world's kind of being remade in front of our eyes. And one of the things that's being remade is how we understand identity, who we are. Now, it used to be that who we are is who our, like our society, the people around us told us we were. And then, I mean, even just in the 90s, early 2000s, the, we, we found out who we are by looking inside and kind of discovering who we were, right, and living in who we were on the inside. Well, the, none of that works in a social media world. What works now is not, not who I am, but what can I project for the world to see? Like, what can I project on social media? What's the life that I can curate, the life that I want, that I can share out there? And if I can share it well enough, then that will be, that's who I am. Then people will know that I matter, that I'm, I'm a thing, that I have an identity. Well, what happens, though, when, the, the problem is that, that is just, that's, it's so shaky. Right? It's always changing. Trends are always changing. We're always trying to keep up. And it's extremely insecure. And what happens is that what we find out is that who we actually are, it's a lot, it's, it's almost like more sticky than who we want to be. It's just harder to get away from it. Who we want to be is just all over the place. It's changing all the time. But who we actually are, we just keep coming back to it. And if we don't like who we are, or it's not, it's not actually what we, who we want to be, then it can be crushing to just keep coming back up against who we actually are. 
Do you know what's better than all that? What's better than all that is for God to say, I know who you are, and I tell you who you are. This psalm says that God knows you. This psalm says that God knows you as you really are. That God knows you when your public image is falling apart. He knows you. He knows your broken heart. He knows um, your messy life, your imperfect life. He knows all of it. And this God says to you, I am a hiding place for you. In me, you do not have to perform. You can confess that thing in your heart that is pretty ugly. And you'll find in me acceptance, love, forgiveness. And he says, act now. Do not delay. Rush, hurry, come into the safety of my arms. And find in me hands that will not push you away, but that will keep you safe. We need his hand, and we need his safety. And finally, we need his covering. And this is, um, I'm going to conclude with this. Uh, one of the big questions of this psalm is, who will cover my sin? Who will cover all our sin? David, in verse 5, he decides, listen, I'm going to stop covering my sin. Why? Well, because in verse 1, he recognizes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The reason we're justifying or ignoring or trying to punish ourselves for our sin is that we know deep down that it needs to be covered somehow. It has to be dealt with. And David says that God knows all of me. All of my sin is just exposed in front of him, and he covers it, not me. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 32. He draws on this passage, particularly verses 1 and 2. And this is what he says. He says, David, he says, see, Psalm 32, see, David, under, even, David understood that God covers sin. David knew that, and he'd experienced that. But he, does, he says, but David did not know fully how God covers sin. David knew that he covered sin. He'd experienced it, but he doesn't know how he covers sin. But Paul says that now we do know. Now we know how God covers our sin. But not only that, as we actually get a fuller picture of how God does this covering, we will understand even more deeply, even, even more deeply than David did, actually, if you can believe it, how great God's love is for his people. Paul says that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, not a word we're throwing around a lot, right? I mean, it's not. The propitiation means that God's wrath against sin had to be satisfied in order for him to forgive us. And Jesus did the work to satisfy it. We've said in, in so many words that we don't take our sin seriously enough. And we might be tempted to think that, well, what we need is for God to take our sin less seriously. Right? For God to say, like, listen, if y'all just beat yourselves up a little bit, then I'll know that you're really sorry about it. And then we can just all forget about it and move on. Well, but that would be God not taking our sins seriously. God covers our, God, God covers our sin by taking it very, very seriously. We can experience forgiveness like that. But true forgiveness does not happen by snapping your fingers. 
there's always a cost. And we can experience the blessing of restored relationship because Jesus himself bore the weight of God's displeasure on our behalf for us. For us, it is free, fully and totally free. But for God, it cost him his son. David says, I cannot cover my own sin. And the Apostle Paul says, and he didn't have to. Jesus hung on the cross. He was completely naked. He was uncovered. He, he exposed to all the shame, the pain, the death of, of death on the cross. The Bible says that although he had done nothing wrong, he removed the covering of God's safety and love to be covered with our guilt and our shame. Why? So that his innocent blood could be that which covers our sin. And so that God could turn towards us, move toward us, forgive us, and make us his own children. So that we could have the sweetness of restored relationship with him forever. That is the expansive, life-altering beauty of Psalm 32. It reminds us that we cannot cover our own sin. But it points our eyes forward. It points our eyes to Jesus. And it tells us that we don't have to because of what he has done. It offers us life in the middle of a desert.